Broadcasting worldwide from the Toad Suck Studio in beautiful central Arkansas, you are listening to Bad Choices and Bourbon. I'm your host, Dan Decker, and today I have with me, out of beautiful central Florida, uh, the one Professor Trek Jefferson. How are you doing? I am well, Commodore. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been uh, uh, a little bit, uh, we've talked before maybe about getting you on the show, and here you are. So Here uh, I am. Here you yeah. am. I stayed up late studying because I know I was going to have to talk to my talk about myself. Oh yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's um, some <laughs> folks' favorite subject. Uh, but uh, did you go back and, and read your notes? Get caught up on yeah. your study guide? <laughs> well, I didn't want to get it wrong. Yeah, you know, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you 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 dropped a few bombs on me as far as uh, potential topics of discussion. We we can make all kinds of uh, tangential uh, excursions here today. I think. Yeah, I, I think I'm a. Uh, a safari guide for tangential uh, excursions. So. Very good, very good. <laughs> Anything you want to talk about, I'm ready to talk about. Well, you mentioned, um, I think, you know, for me, uh, just to kind of play to my own interest, you mentioned that your dad worked for NASA. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, when I was a little kid growing up in uh, Titusville, which is right across the, uh, the Indian River from the uh, Kennedy Space Center, Mm-hmm. As it was as it was known at the time, um, uh, my my father worked for Boeing. He was a contractor for Boeing, working on the uh, Rocketdyne F1 uh, rocket engines that Ooh. launched Apollo, all the Apollo missions into yeah. space. Yeah, uh, including Apollo, Apollo 11, which was the first one to the moon. Um, and so you know, <laughs> here I am, a, a little seven-year-old boy, watching all this stuff play out. Uh, right in my own hometown and then this uh, television show comes on tv all about space travel called star trek so uh i've been a star <laughs> trek fan since since the first day it came on tv i was sitting in front of the tv watching that and and uh, so proud of my dad and the stuff that he was able to do he actually um he because the Rocketdyne engines are the first ones to to uh, ignite when you launch the the uh, apollo missions um, he sat at the console that actually launched the rocket. So oh, wow. he had the key, and he had he pushed the button to launch Apollo 12, which I don't know if, if many people know about the history of Apollo 12, but uh, just as it was uh, clearing the tower, it got struck by lightning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he used to tell a story about how the, the panel lit up like a Christmas tree because, you know, all that feedback <laughs> exactly it, and uh, fortunately it, it the lightning strike didn't do anything because it was well on its way and it was on, right. un, under its own power at that point so uh, actually there's no stopping it at that point no um, not not in any uh, recoverable uh, or agreeable way once yeah. uh, once you light that match it's off yeah and what's what's cool about apollo 12 is uh, you know apollo 11 was the historic one and the one that everybody remembers but if you go back and look at some of the the mission logs from Apollo 12. It was the fun one. It was like they were making fun of uh, of, of Apollo 11. You know, <laughs> like you guys had all the work to do, and now we get to have yeah. you know a vacation on the moon. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I can't remember who it was that that was the the one who stepped out of the uh, lunar lunar excursion model uh, module onto the moon. But I do remember what he said. He said he said that may have been a a uh, large or a small step for Neil, but it's a big one for me. <laughs> That's um, so I, uh, I have been fascinated by space travel my entire life. NASA, um, you know, my, my, um, started with the space shuttle. Of course I was born in 75. So, uh, unfortunately Apollo was well done by the time we were, we were pretending to do Skylab at the time, I think when I was born and launching probes. Um, but I did get to, I was, uh, my mom woke me up. And made sure I was sat in front of the TV for the first shuttle launch. Um, and then my wife made sure that I was standing about three miles away on the causeway when the last shuttle went off. So, oh, wow. yeah, so, so I, I get to see Central Atlantis. Florida. I have. I have. I've been to the Cape. I've, uh, I've been to uh, Kennedy Space Center. And I've seen that glorious uh, Saturn V hung from the ceiling, just uh, all its wonderful parts uh, out on display. And um, But, yeah, that, that F1 engine, that is a, that is a, a still a marvel of modern engineering um, yeah just an incredible I, machine 
I think for the longest time it, it held the world's record for the amount of thrust uh, ever generated by humanity. But, um, <laughs> and, and although I haven't I haven't studied the actual records, I think the one that's being built uh, in Texas is actually larger or, or has more thrust to it. Oh, Which, like the spaceship that they're building? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. big silver one. Yeah. yeah. But I, uh, so uh, one of the things about those engines, though, is, you know, today they've gone back and they've tried to follow the blueprints and they've tried to, to, to mass produce. You cannot mass produce these engines because every one of them was essentially built by hand by the people uh, who designed and, and the, you know, and the, the tradesmen who were there to build them. Um, and each one of them was like fine tuned, you know, engine by engine, part by part. Um, and, and so some of those parts were, you know, machined for just for that specific purpose. Um, that, that's exactly and, uh, correct. And there's this thing in engineering called as built, which, <laughs> uh, which I, for members of your audience who may not be familiar with it, that's that's the concept where as you're building something based on blueprints, you're supposed to update the blueprints. And uh, that's like an afterthought for most engineers. Mm -hmm. So yep. a lot of times it doesn't get doesn't happen. So, you know, well, what, uh, whatever directions uh, you have may not be complete. A more, um, a, probably a, a modern correlation that some folks can relate to is uh, uh, programmers who don't comment their code or update their documentation yeah. <laughs> after the fact. <laughs> and yes. then you, if you are that programmer and you go back on your own work and you're like, well, what was I even trying to do here? <laughs> and you kind of, you kind of do yourself a disservice. Um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, they, they put five of those things on the bottom stage of the Saturn V and uh, it launched people off into, into space on it. That's uh, it's an impressive That's amount of impressive amount of power. Um, all of them combined was still, it's still the most powerful machine we've ever built when you put it all together. Yep. Incredible. Yep. And it's funny about, you know, talking about the, the five engines, they had to work together, um, in, including uh, with the, the gimbal. A gimbal is something that turns the engine from, uh, you know, off of its center axis to help steer mm -hmm. the, um, the, the spacecraft. But um, <laughs> there was a, 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 a funny story my dad used to tell all the time where uh, when, when they were running one of the early unmanned tests the the rocket wasn't going in the direction it was supposed to be going and they couldn't figure out why they couldn't figure out what was going on and it it like delayed the entire program and it came down to the to as they were wiring the uh control modules to the gimbal controls they crossed the the wire so that um when the, the uh computer was trying to get it to go left it was going right so the more left it went, the more it told it to go right. Or, you know, it was... And it, anyway. was, it was completely crosswired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was crosswired. So, <laughs> you know, it was else. an easy fix, fortunately, but, uh, you know, took everybody uh, uh, a few days of head scratching to figure that one out. Right, and that's, uh, that, that is the, you know, that is one of the easiest things to do is, especially if you're, you know, if you're working a problem and you've been so tired or you've been on it for so long, like, I mean, that's, that's the um, wisdom behind the forest for the trees, right? You can't see the forest for the trees because you're too focused tunnel visioned on, on trying to solve it in one way and um, you just don't go back and check your work. Yeah, yeah. So how long and, did your you dad know, work for NASA? Oh, gosh. Uh, he retired after, I believe it was 35 years. Oh, my gracious. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he, he did a lot of things in his lifetime. Um, uh, it, it, I was in my 30s when I heard the story that when I, when I was a kid, I mean, actually, when I was an infant, um, we lived in the Midwest. And the reason we lived in the Midwest is because he was driving around to all the uh, nuclear missile silos to make sure that the Atlas rockets uh, were were functioning the way they're supposed to be functioning. And you talk about stories. There's a bunch of stories about you know uh, how how well or how not well these things were maintained. Oh, um, and, I have a story. <laughs> <laughs> um, you may you probably remember this, but uh, I think it was 1981 when. Um, uh, Arkansas lost a warhead 
and uh, we we um, we nearly had an incident out at one of the uh, silos in, near Damascus here, um, which is you know 30 40 miles uh, up north from where I am. And um, the uh, the problem with it was they were they were doing maintenance, and um, whoever was working the, the the technician was trying to use a, a socket that wasn't quite the right fit. But you know, rather than go back and get the tool proper tool, he was using this improper tool and cranking on the cranking on the nut or whatever, and it slipped and fell all the way down the shaft and ruptured a fuel line. And, uh, you know, fast forward to, uh, you know, a couple hours later and the rocket goes off, the, the fuel ignites and it launches the warhead, you know, clear across the way. And fortunately there was no event, but we were that close to, wow. I, I had to not heard badness. that story. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, documentary on Netflix. I think it's called command and control and Thanks. that covers the story of it. Yeah. Um, I remember pretty much one, I remember it happening and two, uh, I remember that, um, and I probably remember it more because of this, but my, my grandmother was interviewed <laughs> on the news <laughs> about it happening. Cause, uh, she, her house, um, is not far from, from the silo. That's the silo is still there. Of course it's decommissioned, but, um, I know where the road is to drive down to go see it. And yeah, uh, I yeah. see these silos for sale all the time. Like if the, I had they're, a, they're enough money, real estate. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they're not expensive as to, as far as buying one, but boy, making it a livable space will cost you quite a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you think you uh, can't get Wi-Fi in there? Yeah, no, you. Uh, that's what it's like. It's like it's like sixty feet underground or something. The, the air conditioning bill would be very agreeable, though. <laughs> that's true. That's so, true. Um, so you were then you you uh, were you were transplanted to Central Florida then. Yeah, I actually went to five different high schools. Um, so yeah, we 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 moved all over the place. Uh, I've lived in Salina, Kansas, uh, San Diego, New Orleans, that town that's very near and dear to my heart. My oh, my childhood man. home in um, New Orleans was destroyed by Katrina. You can oh, go no. on Google Earth and see the lot, you know, where it used to be, because uh, we were lived in the Upper Ninth Ward. Um, let's see, we lived in Omaha, Nebraska, Seattle, Washington, actually Bellevue, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle. It's where um, this, uh, this computer guy, what's his name, Bill, Bill Gates? Bill, uh, Bill, Bill fellow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he lives up there in Bellevue, uh, in Mercer <laughs> Island, I believe. Uh, and, of course, over in, in Titusville. Um, is I, I went to uh, first and second grade. Actually, second grade. At uh, first, I was in in uh, New Orleans, but second grade through eight, and then came back and uh, graduated from uh, the new high school that's in Titusville called Astronaut High School. So I actually graduated <laughs> from a high school that's named Astronaut High School. That's pretty great. <laughs> that's pretty great. Um, so you mentioned you were you were uh, a wee one, six seven years old when Star Trek premiered. Is that correct? That's correct. Seven wow. years old. And uh, glued in front of the TV to watch these these very interesting characters play out their little space opera. Now, uh, were you did you have a color television, or were you still using black <laughs> and white when it came out? We did have a color television oh, that man. my dad built himself. <laughs> of course, he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there used to be a, a, a company called Heathkit. I'm not even sure it's even out there anymore, but Heathkit sold a a, a television, a color television kit. Um, and, you know, had all the components in there. You know, it's funny. What it didn't have was a console to hold everything. So my oh dad my built the, con the console. But he, get this. He built it. At, you remember? You, you, you've seen the Brady Bunch, the paneling, the wood paneling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He built the, the TV cabinet out of that kind of paneling. So it was this really bizarre looking television. <laughs> but, yeah, it had a, had a huge, like a, I don't know, 20 inch, 28 That's inch. That's pretty big meter. back in the day, man. Yeah, yeah, it was a big yeah, screen. Huge, yeah, and, and well, uh, heavy as all hell. But <laughs> yeah. well, he had little casters on it and stuff, yeah, so you know, yeah. wheel it around, and and you know, we got it was all open in the back because you know he built it himself, and uh, that's actually how I, I got my start in my engineering career is learning 
what all those pieces were doing and how they were doing it and which ones not to touch. And, oh, uh, yeah. A good yeah. lot of them don't touch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's pretty much all of them. Yeah. No, but, uh, you if know, it's you hot or boiling, the, don't touch it. <laughs> where the audio would connect in and, you know, where the, the little control. Uh, and, oh, it, was, it was before uh, remote control. So uh, me and, and my, um, my five siblings performed as the remote control. Oh, yes, of course. So, yeah, you were the get up and uh, directional channel. antenna, right, right, yeah. turn up the volume, wiggle the rabbit ears, you know, stand there. It looks good while <laughs> you stand like that. <laughs> and, and we had all three channels, uh, four oh, if you yeah, count uh -huh. PBS. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and and what you what you need to understand, uh, small children and, and dear listeners, is that um, – when when uh, when the professor, the good professor, and I here were, were children, televisions were furniture. Um, it was a it was a piece of furniture in your living room. It wasn't just a box sitting on a stand. Um, and uh, you know, swivel bases and and just entire cabinets worth of, uh, of electronics in there. Um, some of them with uh, those big old um, also those stereo cabinets with the uh, record players built in. Oh, man. Yep. Can't really beat that sound anymore. They had the uh, high impedance. They had high impedance uh, speakers in them, so it really, uh, it really took a lot to drive them, and uh, you get that get that bo booming, rich, low tone out of them. Um, we had one of those too with a yeah. record player, a turntable. You know, <laughs> turntable. Right in the of that's it. right, right in the middle. <laughs> uh, so what um, what do you remember? So you you were there premiere day, which is. As of recording, we are celebrating Star Trek, 55 years of Star Trek tomorrow. So we're yes. recording this on the 7th of September. And tomorrow, as all good fans know, is Star Trek Day, September the 8th, 1966, when Star Trek appeared on NBC. <laughs> in, in, in you know those three color. tones? Those yeah. three tones mean something? I don't know mm -hmm. if anybody knows this or not, but the, the three tones of NBC, do, do, do are actually uh, the tone G, E, and C, mm -hmm. which is indicative of General Electric Company that owned NBC At when it time. first came on the air. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you, and, now uh, you know. <laughs> and the peacock has colors because color television. That's right. Everything. And that, you know, we, we take a lot of, um, we have a lot of fun with it these days, but, you know, the effects, the sets, the way Trek was produced for that time, it looks campy now, but it was intentional. You know, yeah, they were they were on a budget. They were trying to save some money. But the reason that it is just overblown with light and you see so many, um, uh, oh, you see so many... Um, you know, gels lighting these uh, walls and these off and these weird off colors and the brightness of the, um, you know, the original, the command gold was supposed to be green because red, right. you know, red, blue and green, the primary colors, uh, color television yet again. Uh, but it looked terrible. <laughs> yeah, um, it, didn't, it didn't, come didn't read out quite well right. with the lights yeah. and everything. Yeah, I understand that. And uh, yeah, and talk about the lighting with the, the purple walls, which um, in the... Um, the Deep Space Nine episode, uh, Trials and Tribulations. Yep. Um, they did a really good job of recreating that look uh, yeah. for those scenes. That's absolutely amazing. But my favorite lighting trick on Star Trek, and I don't know whether, I've never heard anybody talk about this, is is what we used to call the rearview mirror. Um, sometimes Kirk sitting in the, um, the command chair mm -hmm. has this concerned look on his face, and there's this light that's highlighting his eyes right just around his eyes, his eyes. Yeah, just his and, eyes. Uh, and it looks like if somebody behind him you know had the brights on and the rearview mirror was shining uh right and that was up reflecting back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I know well that and then um the uh, the generous use of uh soft focus and uh smeared lens um you know they'd get the they'd get that uh that soft effect a lot of times just by smearing vaseline over the camera lens Exactly. And uh, yeah. pulling it down a little bit, but you know, you can always tell. You can always tell when it was. It was. Uh, we were going into uh, you know sexy time because everybody was in soft focus. <laughs> <laughs> You're like oh, Captain Kirk yet again. Um, now, people may not realize that the uh, the original episode, um, the original series was um, it was edited on film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there, there was no such thing as videotape back then, uh, and uh, although, although there was. There were some uh, experimental versions of it. The first show that was edited on videotape was Laugh-In in the 70s. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. 
And get this, it wasn't, it was edited on videotape, but it wasn't edited electronically. Right. They actually took a razor blade and cut the videotape uh, in order to edit it. Yeah, which is totally amazing. It's mind boggling now because, um, you know, and then they would have to, because there was no, uh, and I guess what you know, it's kind of well, we can we can thought experiment this a little bit because I did you mentioned PBS as one of the channels that were available. Um, I did work for Arkansas's PBS affiliate for several years as the digital archivist. So my job was to uh, figure out a way to archive and preserve the deteriorating uh, large format videotapes that we had sitting on the shelf that were getting to be 40 and 50 years old. One and, inch, uh, two inch tapes. Yep. One inch. Uh, I think our largest, oldest format was one inch. We did have some one inch tape. We didn't have any two inch tape. Um, but some of that stuff was, you know, you get maybe one more flight if you're lucky uh, before yeah. the substrate <laughs> falls off. And um, and so, you know, learning that that's how they edited back then when it was new, just like they did in film. You know, film, it's easy because you can see the frame and you piece them together. Um, exactly. You know, I, I learned that when I built up reels for uh, movie theaters. It's, it's not that hard to do. <laughs> but yeah. I can't imagine, you know, especially thinking about 1970s uh, era style equipment and scrubbing to how do you even scrub to the right spot, get the cut, and then, you know, do you dump that down to a broadcast master, I guess, or something? I just, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, they, they had, and I actually learned how to do this when I was in high school in Bellevue. Uh, we had a really advanced uh, media class that, oh, that nice. was also where I was on the radio uh, for the first time. Got my radio broadcasting license from the government and was able to mm-hmm. talk on the radio. Um, and, I am but, licensed by the FCC. Those things never expire. Yes, with broadcast endorsement. I, I had the, right. the pink certificate, not the <laughs> exactly. <blue one>. Right. <laughs> but um, there was a a, a a solvent that you would rub on the tape, and it mm-hmm. would, it would uh, eliminate all the, um, the the recording media mm-hmm. that was not aligned to a signal. So basically, once you did that, all you had were these lines, uh, diagonal lines across the the tape. And that's where you knew where to cut. Oh wow, that's crazy! Yeah, yeah. So, so you it was it almost like frames. You could, you yes, could... almost very, very similar. That's. A, I, I that's just can't imagine point. doing that. I mean, you know, they laughing had a show every week. Yeah. So that means they had to put the show together in it seven days. Really quickly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and like you mentioned, um, you know. For, for the longest time, until until videotape became more prevalent, uh, you know, almost everything was shot to film for, um, unless it was shot live, uh, and then, you know, they would, uh, they'd oftentimes, cines- uh, what is that, uh, not Cinescope, what are those, kin- kinescopes? Yeah. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Where you can, where you record a film to TV, <laughs> kinescopes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but before then, you know, like the original series, cut on film, um, and, uh, all of the next generation cut on film. And those are the reasons that, that is the primary reason that it was easier or, you know, more t- economically viable, I guess, for them to go back and, and uh, remaster those to an HD uh, uh, format because film, film has almost infinite resolution uh, and you can rescan it and rescan it. So, you know, if the, if the interest was ever there, theoretically, they could do a 4K transfer of the original series, and it would look even. We'd see even more coffee stains on Spock's tunic. <laughs> Have you seen that? Uh, there's there's like one frame where they found after they did the HD transfer, and you can you can see like a coffee stain on on Spock's shirt because you know the detail is there where it wasn't before. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, seven years old, Star Trek comes on. You you watch the entire run. How, you remember how you felt when when it was canceled? Um, the dark times between 1969 and, and 1979. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, <laughs> a lot of people didn't understand my thrill when uh, they they released the you know the new movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, in retrospect, we're all looking at the the Star Trek the motion picture as not being that phenomenal. But for, for people like me who were starved for Star Trek content over the years, um, it, was, it, it, it was like the second coming. It was truly well, amazing. Well, talk, um, about, now, uh, talk about that a little bit for me, if you don't mind. Like, being sure. there, when, did you go see the motion picture in cinema? Oh, definitely. 
Yeah. What, what What was your takeaway? Because you you would have been what late late teens, early twenties. Well, what was it? Seventy nine. Seventy nine. Yeah, I was I was uh, twenty years old. Um, it. Well, I don't know if you realize. Well, you probably know this. The the art direction on the Star Trek the motion picture was designed to be like. 2001 at Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, if you think about that, look at the two side by side, it is. It, it's pretty much the, the, the same film. No, it's not the same film, but it has the same look and feel to it. It does. Um, and that also is one of my favorite films. So um, I, I, I didn't have that much of a problem with it. I did like the Monster Maroons much better than the, the you know, um, the pajama thing with the belt buckle. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> they'll still they'll still crack me up. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do I I did like the 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 white shield uh effect on Kirk's tunic. Yeah, I just didn't yeah. like the way they had it. Um uh, in one of my in I, I guess I I started working at Disney in 1979 also and I actually ran into the actor who played um the young Captain Deck. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Collins, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, he ended up being on like Seventh Heaven later on down the line. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And yeah, I was working at Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea for Captain Nemo, and he came wandering <laughs> through the queue. And actually, I, I think I was taking tickets, so I I actually got to speak to him for a couple of minutes and told him how much I enjoyed his work. That's you know one of the perks of working at a at a famous theme park. You get to see um, some had, uh, people from time to time. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, your names, I'm really bad at names, but the, the, the bad guy from uh, Generations. Um, oh, uh, Dr. Soren. Um, yeah. Oh, Roddy McDowell? Roddy McDowell was yeah. in the front of my monorail with me one day. And with, with his wife, who I didn't recognize. I recognize him, uh, but I didn't recognize, actually, I recognize him from time after time. Mm-hmm. Um that was another movie that he had done. But um, his wife was Mary Steenpurgeon. Oh, yeah. See, and <laughs> yeah. she's from which, Arkansas. Which I, I learned that later. And, yeah. and uh, yeah. what was remarkable about that is that they had bought a uh, rocking chair, uh, which is not something you generally buy at, at Walt Disney World. But it's not. They bought one in in, uh, uh, in Liberty Square. It was like a you know little store there in Liberty Square. And so they had to get the rocking chair in the front of the monorail along with them oh my goodness <laughs> the two of them so uh yeah it, you know, monorail so, pilot though that's a that's an exciting adventure oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> please uh, yeah. stand clear of the doors <laughs> yep and most people you know you actually drive those things they're not yeah, they're not automated I, nope you drive it you make it stop you make it go you can run it into other trains if you you know are so inclined but it's against the rules yeah, I would um, recommend maybe not. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, it's, it's funny because there's always people that get up in front of the monorail with you and say, oh, well, look, he's not doing anything. And the whole time I'll be standing there, like, holding holding tight the console, and then I'll look at him with these worried eyes and say, it's really hard to stay on this two-foot piece of concrete all day long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got to hold it. You know, if I turn this yeah. way, we're going to die. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> See, that's the kind of fun I would have. I would have with it. Uh, yeah. How there long was this did you time? Oh, oh, I did ahead. that for for two years. I'm sorry, but um, and I remember it was 19. It was either early 1980. Oh, actually, it was the winter of 1980, and because uh, it was cold, and the costumes that Disney provided us when it was cold uh, included the the regular um, monorail pilot outfit. But you, I got to wear this cool turtleneck underneath. Oh. <laughs> I was wearing a dark gray turtleneck underneath my lime green uh, shirt. And I had the um, a, a flight jacket over top of it, which was made out of, um, it, it was a polyester blend. It wasn't like a leather flight jacket or anything. But I had the flight jacket, and we were all wearing these helmets that had our monorail wings on the top of it. And um, I was in monorail blue. And the reason that's significant is monorail blue was the only monorail that had a red light in the back annunciator panel where the um the circuit breakers were so basically the whole cabin was bathed in this really cool red light Ooh. and i was 
pulling out. Uh, I was on the uh, interior beam, which is the one that goes to the uh, hotels, makes the mm -hmm. hotel circuit, and it goes the opposite direction of the one that goes to the, the main parking lot, the Magic Kingdom. So I was pulling out of the Magic Kingdom station, heading towards the Contemporary Resort Hotel, and uh, the radio was going crazy, and I'm in this this really cool outfit, driving this really cool train with this really cool lighting, going towards a really cool looking building. And I was thinking, I'm in a science fiction right now. I am living the dream. This yeah, is me buddy. driving a monorail. I was, I was just, and that has stuck with me ever since. It was that, that. I can picture that too, though. I've, I've taken that trip many times, pulling out of uh, Magic Kingdom Station, headed towards the Contemporary Resort, and you know, just yeah. I, I, I really, um, I always kind of. Uh, Thought that would be a fun thing to do, you know, once or twice, maybe work for Disney World and uh, have a good time with that. Um, so with the with the motion picture, uh, did you did you enjoy it then or did you <laughs> did you kind of I, I, I did enjoy it. The um, one thing that that was a little bit um, uh, we weren't anticipating a follow up to it either mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the story was self-contained. And as far as we were concerned, it was over. It's yeah. like, oh, okay, great. They brought Star, Star Trek back finally for this, the big hurrah, and now it's done. So there was a little bit of a letdown afterward, you know, especially since we kind of looked at it and said, well, that's sort of the same story as the uh, uh, Changeling <laughs> yeah. episode. <laughs> Wasn't it really, you know, only like really on a big scale. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, you know, we, we thought, okay, great. It's, we, we've got Star Trek, so we were satisfied for a while. And then we totally freaked out when we heard that there was going to be another one. Just three short years. Three short years later, we got a sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we didn't have long to wait, but still, it was like, oh, cool. And then, yeah, and the rest. And is that's uh, that's when my uh, that's when my time uh, kind of came along with Star Trek was about the uh, same time as the motion picture five, six, seven years old. But definitely uh, when the Wrath of Khan came out, I am. Um, I remember that distinctly and uh, going to see that in the theater as a, as a young one um, and just uh, being blown away. Still, nostalgia-wise, probably one of my you know top favorite Star Trek films. As I've grown, um, the, you know, the top five, top three rotation changes over time. Uh, and the motion picture is, is one of my favorite Star Trek films uh, after even, even you know, all the, uh, all the, I don't know, backhanded love that it gets from from the fans it is a, it is a very trek uh story you know it's um i think it's kind of one of the more pure trek stories uh that we've gotten although it is very uh paced <laughs> it's a very very paced movie yeah they they you know the the development of some of the characters was a little thin uh but i mean who can argue that the Constitution class uh, refit was it the best oh. starship ever? <laughs> it's my favorite starship design. It's always yeah, will too. be. Uh, there's just, I mean, I, I haven't experienced that introduction on the big screen, but I can only imagine what it's like to see the, you know, that six and a half minute introduction uh, in space dock uh, on, you know, a nine foot tall screen that would probably just blow my mind. Uh, I didn't get that experience, even though we had the 40th anniversary re-release uh, not too long ago as I was at work the night that it was available to go see. So that didn't work out for me. Um, well, what is, uh, what is your favorite? What is your favorite Star Trek out of all the many, 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 many treks we have now? Um, well, if, if you're talking the, the uh, series two, that's going to be really hard. Uh, well, uh, let's let's do the movies. Uh, the movies, I yeah. uh, I would would have to say Wrath of Khan. Still favorite. Uh, I, some sometimes I'll just throw that one on just to to watch mm -hmm. the the battle of the the Mutara Dara. Nebula. Uh, Nebula. Yeah. yeah, I love uh, I love that movie so much. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I mean, every, every there isn't anything that I can find wrong with it, and and I love the fact that. Uh, uh, the, the main hero, Mr. Spock, realigns the warp core using a pair of oven mitts. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, big oven mitts. And um, I remember when I was when I was young, I uh, I was concerned as to why you know because he's he's 
after it's over, you know, and his face is in his face is in pretty rough shape. Uh, I, it always stuck with me. It looked like he had peanut butter smeared on his face oh. after it was over, <laughs> and I wasn't quite I didn't quite understand then what had exactly had happened. Um, but uh, still, every time I every time I watch that sequence, it gets me every time. Uh, even though you know it all works out in the end. Some of your younger viewers may not be aware, but um, prior to the release uh, of Wrath of Khan, word got out that Mr. Spock was going to die. And, of course, the studio uh, played that down. Said, how could we kill a main character? That's just not going to happen. That's not happening? Yeah. Right. So uh, um, what they did to combat that is very early in the film, you'll notice that Captain Kirk looks at Mr. Spock and says, aren't you dead? <laughs> and uh, that was a way of, of, of throwing everybody off. So, yep. so that it was, it was a big surprise at the end. Was, oh, okay. Well, he guess he did die. It wasn't just that. Uh, you know, aren't you and dead? Uh, contrast that to modern, you know, movie advertising where they totally would have spoiled Spock's death in the trailer on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they show you all the funniest jokes and all of the biggest yep. action moments. <laughs> very, very rarely am I, uh, I. I just basically, you know, unless it's something just incredibly anticipated, I don't usually watch the previews anymore anyway because it's never going to match uh, what you see on the film as it is. Um, yeah. So, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, favorite Star Trek movie. Um, uh -huh. Do you have a Do you have a close second? Uh, I I like I like Nemesis. Yeah. Oh, hey, right on. <laughs> Not too many of us. Well, yeah. I actually liked I mean, it. I did. I enjoyed it a lot. I I, I do like Nemesis because, uh, you know, that it's to me it's all about story and mm -hmm. the character. And you know, granted, why would the Romulans build a weapon that takes you know ten minutes to fire? Uh, but but other than that, <laughs> there are a lot of other cool things about it. you know the right the. The it's a prototype. They're working out the kinks, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you, you look at all my favorite ones, I mean, the, the, the character development in Wrath of Khan was, was very well done, too. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Actually, the character picture, people don't talk about that because of all the other distractions. But the character development in Star Trek, the motion picture, was superb because Mr. Spock was going through it all. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, you know. It's it's really a movie about him if you think it about is. it. It is. Uh, Viger just happens to be the vehicle that everything happens to, but he's uh, yeah he's his story arc is the most important one on there. Um, but let's see. So and with Nemesis, it's about data, right? Yeah. Data, data realizing where what his his role is, what his part is, and you know which also ties into my favorite show right now is Picard. Oh, nice. Uh, start, the, the way they wrapped up Data's storyline was oh just, I, I thought it was perfect. You it know? got me. It did. I was, uh, I was a blubbering mess uh, watching that uh, last bit there. And um, to, to kind of step back a minute to, to what something you said just a second ago about Nemesis and the story and it being Data's story. And you know, and this was this was brought back around. This point was brought back up again in um, in the final moments of Picard, where you know Data's entire arc has been to be as human as possible and sacrificing oneself for their friend um, and fulfilling that ultimate. Uh, you know, the, the end of your life is the most human thing you can do, and you know come to find out that they saved a positron and he wasn't even able to have that death until 20 some odd years later um, but we got a much better moment out of it uh, I yeah. think that they came back and picked up that thread and you know it was it was shocking and effective in the moment in Nemesis and we probably all kind of could have called the ball and saw it coming but at the same time having them have a Letting Picard and Data have the opportunity to to just have that was was more than special, um, and I think all the I could you know we could we could definitely get into uh, the nits and, the nits and picks of of Picard, but at the end of it, um, that was what brought it all home for me, right? Uh, and everything we saw leading up to that was totally worth it. So, 
Oh, you were talking about um, how studios sometimes will release the most important parts of a film in their promos and everything. Uh, I was a little bit um, disappointed with the spoilers that were released about the next season of Picard by announcing uh, a particular actress who's <laughs> who's playing a pivotal role, which is we didn't realize that there was going to be one of those. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to. I, I I don't know how many spoilers uh, your audience expects. Um, <laughs> and and I, I'm also painfully aware that there are a lot of of my friends in in uh, Europe and other countries that haven't had a chance to see even uh, lower decks yet. Oh, I know, I know. Well, they finally got that sorted a little bit. At least Paramount Plus is available more widely, and we don't have to be as um, as uh, gracious with our with our friends across the pond and not spoiling spoiling lower decks which is one of my favorite shows these days um i love all the jokes uh, oh yeah yeah it's it's As, definitely a love song to all trek fans everywhere oh yeah it is it's definitely i mean it, it, to me it it comes across as written by fans for fans um, right. And it may not. It, and listen, I, it's obviously not for every fan because the, we there are plenty of those conversations being had. Um, but if you know, if you let yourself enjoy something, if you just let yourself enjoy it, I, I tend to find that I have a much better time. Um, well, I look at I'm it this way. For... I I grew up with Star Trek. I had three years of it, and then not well. I had the the animated series, which I didn't really get into so much. In fact, it's even I, I don't think I've ever seen every episode. Uh, but um, there was so much no Trek for the longest time. And now there's so much new Trek that mm-hmm. it's significant. And it's like, where have you been all my life? And I, I just, uh, it, it makes me feel young. It makes me feel happy. I just, you know, me I too. And anything too. that has Star Trek on it. I'm, I'm for it. You know? Well, and, um, Oh, I was watching, I was pulling up on Paramount Plus the other day, not a sponsor. Uh, I was pulling up just to, uh, just to, you know, watch some Star Trek because it had been a couple days since I'd, since I'd had it on. And that's, you know, that's atypical. And so I, uh, but I brought up the main Star Trek page that, and there are 10, including, including the short treks, there are 10 series of Trek listed there now, um, yeah, no, I think there's 10 plus the short treks is the way I added it up. Uh, because now we have, uh, you know, prodigies yet to, to release, but there it is. And like you, you know, not quite to the same degree, but for me, Trek, you know, early Trek was the motion picture, the, the animated series and the original series. As you could find it on TV, you know, if you were lucky, you got it on a Saturday afternoon or, you know, maybe late afternoon after school. And then... You know, long come 1987, I'm 12 years old, and we get the Next Generation launches. And it went from, you know, maybe we'll get another Trek, Star Trek movie, you know, because we didn't know how many Star Trek movies we were going to get. Um, you know, and, and, and that time we had, uh, well, we had up to Star Trek Four, I think, uh, kind of completed that whole trilogy. Um, yeah, no, we hadn't had Star Trek Five yet. And so the uh, I, I can empathize with the you know the nebulous uh where where's my next trek coming from right? right and and you recall i'm sure you you you've been there for every iteration of that's not star trek right people people oh, yeah. have they derided the motion picture as not real star trek uh and so on and so forth and we get to the next generation and oh that's not real star trek and if you know deep space nine voyager enterprise they all went through the same that's not real yep. star trek and it, it, it's it's he it, amuses it amuses me, um, watching over the years as eventually they all just become Star Trek, and nobody. And then there's a, they move the line. Okay, well, Enterprise is definitely real Star Trek, but anything past Enterprise that's not real Star Trek. Right. You know, right. they just keep moving just a little every so often, and then, you know it's a generational thing. Um, the the folks who, uh, in, and I'm not saying. You have to like it all. Obviously, you don't have to like it all. Um, but let those of us that like it all like it all, and you go and enjoy the things that you like and come to, uh, you know, let's have a conversation about where we enjoy the same thing rather than fight about the new stuff that I maybe like and that you don't. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. But, you know, well, you my remember least favorite, the dark times. <laughs> I do. And my least favorite 
sentiment in that respect is, oh, Gene Roddenberry never would have done that. Oh, man. And and uh, hearing that sounds very familiar to a whole class of people who say the same thing about Walt Disney. Yeah, yeah. Walt, Walt never would have built Walt's Epcot. rolling over in his grave. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> no. You know what Walt Disney liked to do? Make money. You know what Gene exactly. Roddenberry liked to do? <laughs> Make money. That's what they like to do. And I tell you this, man, Gene's vision was horn dogging across the universe. There was there was that's Gene's vision. Every every species that comes along, he had a treatise on how they made it, what their rituals were. This man was obsessed with with just a few things. And he would have he notoriously, Trek, has pushed the boundaries of what's allowed on television. Um, you know, for ideological thinking for what's been presented visually on the screen um and and all jokes aside gene's vision was to push that envelope as broadly as possible um and tell the most expansive stories as as he could get away with you know exactly it was stories all about story storytelling and yeah in the 60s you couldn't do a lot of stuff and that's why we you know that's one of the reasons why we ended up with what we've got with the original series. There's still good stories, mm-hmm. but you know, the there were budget limitations as to what you could do with special effects, and there were social limitations as to what you could do on screen and present in people's living rooms. Um, similar to Walt Disney, Walt Disney was all about story. Um, there was a, a there's a famous story about Walt Disney and the end of Sleeping Beauty, where um, the prince, when the prince is getting up, he did a little wiggle. His, his, his the animation wasn't as solid as it as it should have been, and uh, Walt Disney didn't like it, and they, he asked his his people, "Well, how much would it cost to, to to fix that?" And the number that came back was just astronomical, and he said, "Okay, go ahead and fix it." Uh, <laughs> Because he knew that you know, over time, you know, we're, we're going to be watching. Here, here we are in uh, 2021, and you can still watch uh, Snow White and and Sleeping Beauty on the uh, uh, on on screens. So he fixed something for antiquity. Yeah. Before before that was popular, before you, people yeah. even had that kind of vision that that it was going to be happening. So yeah, it it saying that somebody um, would never do something. First of all, that that precludes them ever growing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if Gene were alive today, who knows what he'd be doing because of all the possibilities that he have had to be doing. If Walt Disney was alive today, who knows what he'd be doing? It would probably be, you know, controversial and off the wall and and you know things that people don't understand. Um, uh, he, as an artist, every artist has that choice to to simply push the boundaries and to, and to go where. No one else has gone before. What? Yeah. No, it's you're absolutely right, though. And then, um, you know, to to carry that um, one uh, one step further, uh, as uh, we do approach the 10th anniversary of his passing, um, we hear it a lot at the fruit company. Steve wouldn't, you know, Steve's yeah. rolling over in his grave. Steve would have never done that. Yeah. What? No, no, you don't know. You don't know. You know, because Steve Jobs, at the end of his life, did a lot of things that Steve Jobs in 1982 wouldn't have done, you know, and vice versa. Uh, because like you said, it precludes growth and change as a human and a person um, to to have this, you know, this ideological rose-colored version of, of our heroes uh, is dangerous uh, because we put them on these pedestals and remove them from humanity um, and think of them in these uh, idea, uh, you know, these uh, ideological terms rather than these human terms that they were. They were people, just like us, with flaws and yep. dreams and desires. Obviously, Walt had enough. Uh, I mean, you could even, if you wanted to get deep down psychological about it, you could call what he did there with Sleeping Beauty ego. <laughs> because yeah. he's put, he's literally signing his name to it. And, you know, here, here what 50 odd years later we could be talking about the fact that he fixed it or we could be talking about the animation error right 
<laughs> you know, and and he had he had enough uh, enough ego. Let's be honest, he had enough ego to anticipate that he would rather us talk about having it fixed rather than that it was a mistake. You know, and I can appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, good professor. Um, what else interests you? I know we've talked a lot about Trek and Disney and and, and NASA, but what else what else uh, floats your fancy from time to time? Uh, well, I after working for Disney for more than thirty five years, um, it stopped being fun. And if I could tell one thing to young people today. <laughs> <laughs> When, when you're doing something and it stops being fun, find something else to do. And that's yeah. exactly what I did. I separate, I parted ways from Disney. I still have many dear friends who uh, are still affiliated with them and they're doing wonderful things. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's not for me anymore. So uh, I, I found that I have a passion that for teaching little kids science. Oh, nice. So, so yeah, that, so I invented this persona I found a little outfit that uh, pays me to go into people's classrooms and, and do science experiments for them. And um, I kind of took the idea and made it my own. And it's more like a, a carrot top meets Bill Nye, the science guy. So <laughs> you sit Trot through one of my in science. Yeah, exactly. You sit through one of my uh, my uh, science classes. It's more like a, a 45 minute comedy routine. Um, but, you know, I wear the, the, the bow tie and the lab coat and, and tell all sorts of dad jokes uh, oh, to yeah. the point where, you know, if you don't get a groan out of it, um, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> but um, and I also try to sometimes the environment where I'm teaching the kids has the parents. So it's, it's a lot of fun to put joke and hit on two different levels. Uh, so that you you notice them laughing and yeah. the kids are the kids are like you know they they're they understand they think it's funny but they don't know why uh, so anyway so that that is my current passion is teaching science to kids and um i it it doesn't pay all that well i will be honest i'm not making as much money as i used to make when i was working uh, for the mouse but um i'm having a lot more fun yeah. And I, I, so I got a, I got a real job. Uh, I work at a university. I'm a computer guy at the university and I don't use a Macintosh, which is you know, sorely, I sorely miss, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but in this, in this capacity, I happen to cross paths with the person who runs education at the college or runs the education department. And we've collaborated to build a mobile STEM uh, uh, vehicle. Oh wow! Now, when I when I say STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It's right. it's a uh, it, it's a, a combine a combination of what things that are important for kids to learn these days. So we're doing this mobile STEM lab. I, I want to call it the STEM ship. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> not like a steamship, but a but STEM, a STEM ship. ship. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. And we're gonna fill it with all sorts of fun uh, science, and we're we're gonna go to to elementary schools all in the central Florida area. And we're gonna teach kids uh, things about science and maybe entertain them a little bit, get them out of the classroom and uh, you know, and the paved areas next to the parking lot where we park this thing. Uh, kind of like a, a food truck, only it's a food truck with a mind. Nice food truck for the mind. See, that's oh, a perfect my. tagline. Yeah, it's our, our marketing strategy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I, you know, I love the idea of uh, I'm a big fan of, of uh, you know, I enjoy teaching uh, kids. Um, two, I've been a Taekwondo instructor before teaching young children karate. And um, it's just, I don't know, there's something about it when, when you can see them pick up a new uh, idea or piece of information and just see that switch flip and, you know, they, the lights come on. It's uh, it's a pretty fantastic uh, time to be around. And, um, yeah, no, that is, a, that is wonderful because, like you said, this is the things the kids need to know these days. Um, it's not as uh, simple as it was when we were, you know, <laughs> I learned about DNA and then my kids, uh, they have all learned what is in DNA and what they all like, what the proteins do. We were just learning about DNA when I was, you know, at school in their age and, and we knew what it, what it did, but you know, I didn't have to learn about how it all breaks down. And it kind of reminds me, you know, in, in Trek, uh, you hear all the, you know, 
14, 15 year old kids are talking about taking quantum physics. You're like, how the heck do you learn quantum physics? <laughs> well, this is how, because as we progress, the baseline of knowledge actually, uh, you know, gets broader and broader. And um, what you need to know to get further ahead becomes more and more. And, I uh, will admit to uh, to bringing quantum physics ideas to, um, you know, first and second graders. There you go. They, there you go. They're, they're open to any idea you tell them and you exactly. know, explain how it works. They're. They're fine, you know. That most of my best kids know all about the multiverse and and how that stuff works. They well, know and about probability and Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's cat. See, uh, that's but their minds their minds aren't trapped like ours. You know, you try to learn these 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 bigger concepts as an adult, and you're you're locked into the way the world works. Let's say, well, that's not how the world works right now. Well, yeah, you tell that to a kid though, and their imagination doesn't. It just doesn't stop. They can they can reorganize, you know, the natural world in their heads and make it work. And and that's, uh, that's something we fail or we forget how to do as we get older. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, it has been an absolute honor to get to speak to you today. I've had a lot of fun. Um, is there anything that you would like to mention or put out there before we go? Is there any place that we can learn more about the the STEM ship? Uh, well, we're not we're not quite. We, we've got the funding for it, but we haven't actually built the vehicle yet. Got so, it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, hey, the funding um, is the that's the hardest part. You get the funding. You know. Yeah. No. Right. Everything else comes together. <laughs> Uh, I, and I'm not Twitter famous, uh, you know. I, I've got a handful of followers, so I, I don't really have a, a page. I'm not selling anything other than <laughs> than the the idea that you know you should really try to live your best life. You know? There you go. I um, I, although I don't believe that we only live once, I think you know I, I think the the multiverse uh, prevents you from actually uh, expiring when you die, because you know in some some iteration somewhere in some um alternate universe you you, you persist you yeah so so um I, I have some kind of strange ideas about that but it, if i had to say explain what the um what's the meaning of life we're going to get to the meaning of life now uh <laughs> if i had to say what the meaning of life was it it's it's really very simple it's to be happy mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. you're the bottom line is you're providing content to the universe so the universe can know itself that's what that's one of the my favorite carl sagan quotes is that we are a way that the cosmos can know itself and i i i believe that's true so um we're like the television producers for this this universal consciousness and in order to keep it in entertained we have to do things that entertain it so Live your best life, be happy, and the universe will be happy, and and you will have fulfilled your function in the grand scheme of things. There so, you go. There you go. So kids, and, get out there and be happy. Well, and you're, you know, I mean, if you're genuinely happy, that breeds happiness in others. You know, there's, there's, you can, you can be happy about the things you have, or you can be happy with your life, and those two things are not the same. You know, right. um, and uh, people who are happy with their life can share that happiness with others. And, um, you know, if you're just happy with the stuff that you have, then all you're ever going to want is more stuff. Yeah. You know? And when it comes down to it, happiness is a choice. It is. It is. And uh, I have um, I try to remember that, you know, I wake up every day and try to try to choose to be uh, a happy person. Um, it may take me an hour or two and a cup of coffee to, to fully come to that, that decision. But, yeah, it is... Um, it really is the day. The day will give you back what you put into it. And if you want to put negativity into the day, then it'll happily return that in kind. Um, and that's not to say that you're not allowed to have a bad day. And that's not to say that, you know, you know, it may just be one of those days where you can't. And that's fine. Uh, but in the end, like like uh, the good professor was saying, it's your choice, you know. Um, and that, yeah, it's your choice. You can say today, like recently on Twitter. I caught myself being more negative than, than I care to. And so I've decided, like a soda, I'm allowed one a day. I'm allowed to be <laughs> a, a, a grumpy curmudgeon in one tweet a day. And so it better be a good one because all the rest of my tweets are going to be Trek memes and dad jokes. 
uh, throughout <laughs> the rest of the day because that's what brings me joy. Um, but also, you know, if you deny yourself the things that, um, quote, you're not supposed to have or, you know, those little moments, that's when they become a problem. Like if I told myself I can't have any sodas, then all I'm going to want to do is drink soda. But if I tell myself you're allowed one soda a day, I can choose when throughout the day do I have that soda or if I even have it. But it's my choice and it's available instead of telling myself no. sell yourself, maybe, you know. And that brings me a little bit of happiness. <laughs> and speaking of bringing a little bit of happiness, folks, I hope that this uh, has brought y'all a little bit of happiness throughout your day. And of course, uh, I am always grateful to have your ears and hope we have earned them again for next week. Um, if you'd like to support the show, the easiest and best way to do that is to leave a uh, review on your catcher of choice. Um, just drop a note in there and let me know how we're doing. And uh, if you have any suggestions, you can always leave those for me on Twitter at D-A-N-D-E-C-K-R. Um, but if you have the means by which to provide real material support, uh, totally welcome that at patreon.com slash D-A-N-D-E-C-K-R, whereas for as little as $3 a month, you can gain early access to this episode and all future episodes, as well as um, uh, new perks and things coming along in the future. But for as little as $1 a month, you can uh, just... Send that over and help out. Every little bit is appreciated. Every little bit does go quite a long way. And with that, I just want to say uh, to you once again, thanks and uh, good night from the Toad Suck Studio. And there we go. Man, thanks so much. Thanks, man. You're welcome. This was fun. Yeah. Good. I'm you're, glad you're, you enjoyed it. You're my first time. Oh, wow. You were... <laughs> it's a, it's a, there's a, I, should, I should do a playlist of, uh, of all the first-time podcasters that have been on the show. <laughs> It's uh, it could it, it might be about halfsies at this point, um, but well, thank you very much for letting me be the one. 